Amen. Thank you, choir. Well, they've done good all day, haven't they? Just think if they ever rehearsed what they would do. <laughs> you need to pray for them. They're making another tape in the next few weeks. It'll be available before the end of this year. And our student choir is going to have a couple of songs on that tape, and I'm excited about that and about what's happening with them. And I had 85 in student choir tonight. And so the Lord's just doing some marvelous, marvelous things in our midst, something that we should never take for granted but should always stop and praise Him for and thank Him for. And the Lord's given us some good decisions today, and I'm grateful for those, and I want to ask you to join me in prayer before we begin in Joshua chapter 8. Father, there are some people in this room and some that will watch by television that are in the middle of a warfare. Satan is eating their lunch. He's beating them up, and they are struggling in their Christian life. Lord, I pray that as we move out of the defeat of Joshua 7, that we will move into the victory and the praise and worship that concludes Joshua 8. Lord, so much that you have before us tonight would take so long to cover, but Lord, I pray that you would organize my thoughts, that you would again hide me behind the cross, give me the strength that I need, the voice that I need, to preach your word without apology, to stand on truth, and to let your word speak to the hearts of people so that they can respond accordingly. Lord, we bless your name. We bless you for what you are doing in our midst. We bless you for the spirit of renewal, for the momentum that only comes from your spirit from the enthusiasm that comes because of our joy of walking with you, and from the increasing desire of this membership to serve and not just to sit, I thank you and I praise you. Lord, I wouldn't take nothing from our journey, and I'm grateful that as a part of my journey, you've let me be a part of what you're doing here. Bless our time in the Word, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> F.W. Robertson said, Life Like War is a series of mistakes. And he is not the best Christian nor the best general who makes the fewest false steps. Poor mediocrity may secure that. But he is the best who wins the most splendid victories by the retrieval of mistakes. Forget mistakes and organize victories out of mistakes. Someone has said that a mistake is an opportunity to begin again with more information. The one thing that you will learn as you study Scripture is failure never has to be final. That those setbacks in life can be the springboards by which you and I go into a deeper walk and a stronger relationship with the Lord Jesus. I know that in my own life, some of the mistakes that I've made, some of the blunders the times when I've acted in the flesh have been times when God has brought me back to reality and he's brought me back to himself and taught me some of his greatest lessons. Some of the times when I have blundered along the way and suffered a setback, God has spoken to me in those moments of brokenness and in those times of repentance and said things to me that I would have never heard if I had been busy on the journey and so busy that I forgot 
and spend time with him. So I think those times of setbacks, just like Joshua 7, can be a springboard into Joshua 8. Whereas Joshua 7 was the account of the defeat at Ai, now there is the account of the victory at Ai. God takes this defeat and turns it into a victory, and by what he does in the lives of these people, we find encouragement when we face the battles of our lives. J. Oswald Sanders said, The great lesson for us is that though only one person sinned, blessing and victory stop for all. Sin hinders the advance and victory of the church. We are too often defeated and discouraged. We are too often set back rather than looking at our setbacks and saying, God, what do you want to teach me out of this? What do you want to say to me because of this? How do you want me to move ahead in light of this happening in my life? Believing that Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. How is this going to work for good in my life to bring good and glory in and through my life? Well, there are several things that I want you to see tonight. First of all, God will not leave you in despair. Look at verse 1 of Joshua chapter 8. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and his king just as you did to Jericho and its king. And you shall take only its spoils and its cattle as plunder for yourself. Set an ambush for the city behind it. God will not leave you in despair. Alexander White said, The victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Now, I want you to notice what God has said to Joshua after this time of defeat, and that had to have broken his heart and crushed him and had been devastating for the people to go through what Achan had sent them through and to have to exercise God's judgment on Achan and to have to discipline and to burn all of that and to heap those stones up. He had to have been discouraged. And God comes back to him, and the first thing he says after he has obeyed him is, Do not fear or be dismayed. Now, you remember the first time those words were spoken, Moses spoke those words at Kadesh Barnea over 40 years before. He spoke it to the people as they were preparing to go into the land. The second time those words were spoken, Moses spoke them to Joshua. He said to him as he was about to take over leadership, do not fear, be dismayed. We find those words again in Joshua chapter 1. And now Joshua hears these words directly from the Lord. Do not fear or be dismayed. Whatever it is you fear, whatever it is has you dismayed, God would say to you, I don't want you to stay there. I don't want to leave you there. I want you to get your eyes off your circumstances and get your eyes on me. Don't fear. Don't be dismayed because God has a victory around the corner if you keep your eyes on him. Secondly, God will give you directions for victory. Notice that he says, set an ambush for the city behind it. Now, this is different from what he told them to do with Jericho. He had told them to just march around the city in plain view. Now, he says that they were to set an ambush for the city behind it. There was a change in methods. Whether it was very visible with Jericho, it's now a covert operation. They are to slip around in the darkness of the night and to hide some of their troops behind the city, and then they are to come up and they're to squeeze the city between two strong forces. This was a change in methods. It's important for us to remember that because sometimes we think God only does things one way. 
We get caught in our methods and in our method of doing things and in our way that we are comfortable and, and none of us like change. Nobody likes change. Anybody that says they like change is not telling you the truth. Nobody likes change. Change makes us uncomfortable, but the truth is when we quit changing, we stop growing, and when we stop growing, we start dying. Change is inevitable in life. And God sometimes changes the methods that he does things for the simple reason that he doesn't want us to depend on our experiences. He wants us to depend on him. You see, if we depend on the methods that we've used in the past and the, and the methods that we are comfortable with and the things that make us feel good about ourselves and the things that do not put us outside our comfort zone, we can easily just begin to coast on what we know and what we've experienced and not stay before the Lord and see what new thing the Lord might want to do. Just as he did something different with Jericho and Ai, he may want to do something different in the way that you attack a battle in your life today. We need to change. God's orders were different. Now, in verses 2 through 17, we won't take time to read all of that, but under the cover of darkness, he sent out some advanced troops. They hid in the rocks away from the view of the king of Ai and the troops, and they waited until morning. Kind of to summarize that, uh, he sent them around to one side, and then Joshua stayed with the remainder of the forces, and he was going to attack just like he had done before with the 3,000 men. And when the troops would come out of the city, they would begin to retreat just like they had retreated before. And then when they would retreat, the troops behind the city, once all the soldiers had emptied out of it, they would come in and set fire to the city. Then when the troops would see that the fire was going in the city and their town was being burned, they would turn around and rush back into the city and then Joshua and his men would rush in and the troops in Ai would find themselves between two forces pushing in on them. So God had a different method. He said, pretend I'm going to use their overconfidence, their self-confidence. They're going to see you run and say, hey, that's it. You know, boy, we can, I tell you what, we can get these Jews running, boy. We can get them moving, and they are scared of us, and we're going to set them up. We're going to get them out of the city. They're going to be pursuing, and then I want the rest of you to come in right behind them to take over the city, to begin to set it on fire. And then when they realize what happens, we've got them in a trap. So God trapped them, and he set a trap for them, and there was a strategy and a method for this trap. Now, I did, I did some work this week, and, and I found out that the word, English word strategy comes from two Greek words, and it means to lead an army. Joshua had a strategy. God had a strategy. Now, when we talk about the faith walk and about walking with God in faith and about depending on God and trusting God, it doesn't mean we do that without a strategy. Just as Joshua had a plan, Nehemiah had a plan, all through Scripture you will find God's men with a plan on how they're going to accomplish under the authority of the Lord what God wants them to do. God wants us to have a strategy, and a strategy is really leading an army. It means to lead an army. God has had a strategy since creation. The cross was a part of his strategy. The resurrection was his strategy. The ascension was his strategy. Pentecost was in his strategy. And what he does all the way through time has been a part of his strategy. He just wants us to get on it. God wants to give us directions for victory. Now, what happens is when you get in on God's strategy, you always catch the enemy off guard. Isn't that good? Because he's always catching up off, us off guard. I mean, I'm so tired of Satan catching me off guard. I just like every now and then to catch him off guard. 
I like to get him running every now and then. I like to get him in a vice grip every... I like him to sweat a little bit every now and then. Do you, do you ever like to just get the devil mad? I mean, he makes us mad enough. Why don't we make him mad sometimes? Well, there's a strategy and there are directions for victory. Now, the third thing is God wants us to distinguish a battle from a war. Now, th this one's crucial, and this one kind of jumped out at me this week. The initial battle was a crushing defeat, but the second one was an overwhelming victory. Now, what is a war? A war is a series of battles that comes to an ultimate conclusion where one side wins and the other side loses. A war is not a battle. It's a culmination of many battles. You see, you can lose a battle and still win the war. Now, for instance, on December 7, 1941, the Japanese dropped a bomb on Pearl Harbor, nearly devastated and decimated the United States fleet in the Pacific. But we did not lose the war, did we? We won the war, although we lost the initial battle and we were almost wiped out to the point where we could have been totally destroyed in the Pacific. Yet we came back and regrouped. You see, it is seeing the big picture and not getting caught up in that one defeat. By the way, if you study the book of Joshua, you'll find that they spent about seven years taking the land and Ai was the only defeat that they suffered. There is a time when there are battles that we seem to lose. And God wants us to distinguish a battle from the war. Now, here's what I mean by that. It appears on the surface that the enemy is winning even today. In culture wars, in Congress, in the White House, in every place you look, in the news media, it appears that we are reeling and backing up and backpedaling all the way through. It seems like everybody's coming out of the closet and everybody's pushing their agenda and the Christians are kind of getting pushed out. You know, we kind of got pumped up. You remember when we elected Carter in 76, got a born-again president? <clears throat> then you remember in 80, you know, the moral majority came out. Boy, we, we were on a roll. Man, you've got to have the moral majority behind you. Now all of a sudden, all these other people are coming out and everybody's kind of attacking the religious right and taking shots at the religious right. And right. We're, we're kind of backpedaling. You know, we're kind of, we're kind of coming back and saying, whoa, wait a minute, you know, it looks like, looks like we're not going to get anything through. I mean, we try to get morality and we try to get values and we try to talk about those things and, and then all kind of weirdos and all kind of groups come out of the closets and that, you know you wish you just could have locked that closet but uh, they all come out and and you think lord what in the world we are losing this battle we are losing and you've heard preachers say that on tv we're losing the heart of america we're losing the value system of america we're losing the moral base of america we're losing all this let's always remember folks this is just a battle in the panorama of history this is not the end. There is an end that's coming, and I know who wins. Now, do you remember, I, I know you've not done this, but, but I had a tendency when I was a kid, and my kids have a tendency to do this sometime, and so it's hereditary, I know that. Uh, do you remember when you used to get a book like a, like a Hardy Boys book or you got a Nancy Drew book or you got some kind of mystery book and you wanted to know who did it, and so what would you do? You open it up to the last chapter. And you read the last chapter first. Shame on you. You put librarians out of business. Shame on you, shame on you. 
I mean, you open it up, you read, oh, I, I, I know who did that now. And then you're reading the whole book, and you're not sweating. I mean, Nancy Drew's in a bind. The Hardy Boys are in a bind. Everybody's in a bind. Everybody's sweating. Oh, what's it going to do? And you're sitting there, saying, oh, who cares, man? I know. They're alive at the end of the book. Everything's fine at the end of the book. Listen, I've read the last chapter. I, I know what happens in the end of the book. This is no big deal. No problem. They're going to come out of it in the end. I'm not even worried about this. I can go to sleep and sleep like a baby because I'm not even worried because they're going to be fine. Well, I want to tell you, I've read the last two chapters in the book. And there's no devil in the first two chapters of the book and there's no devil in the last two chapters of the book. And Jesus Christ reigns as Lord. And we may lose a battle every now and then. But folks, I've got good news for you. He's not going to win against our Lord. He's not going to win. Now, let's look at some scriptures that tell us that this is exactly what we could expect. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I'm just going to read these because these apply to the last days. And whether you think the last days are today or tomorrow or immediate or in the next hundred years, it really doesn't matter. It is the fact that we are living in times moving toward the culmination of human history. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. I've got to tell you this. You know, I, I was in that motorcade. You know, David, did you get your picture yet? You're working on it. Hadn't gotten your picture yet. I got my picture, David. Sure did. I've got a picture. I've got an official White House photograph. Got four of them in the mail because I was in that motorcade. I got an official White House photograph of the entire Gore family. I'll give you $5 if you'll take it. <clears throat> I've got an official White House photograph of the president. I've got an official White House photograph of, of Bill and Al walking out of the White House and just kind of strolling across the White House lawn. But then I've got an official picture of the president with, what's the cat's name? Socks. A sock, I mean, Hillary, a socks on his shoulder. <laughs> Now, my mother-in-law voted for Bill Clinton. We just got her out of the home, and she voted for him. And <laughs> We're going to give her an autographed picture of Bill Clinton and tell her it's worth whatever she can get for it. But uh, anyway, that's, sometimes it seems they win. You know, have you noticed? Have you noticed that all of a sudden the president has begun talking about values? Have you noticed that he's saying the same thing that Dan Quayle said two years ago? Isn't this funny? What's the deal? Oh, two months before an election. That's the deal. You see, you're going to ebb and flow in politics, folks. If you depend on politics to set the agenda for the world, you're in trouble. You can't elect enough good people and you can't get out enough bad people. Power corrupts and absolute power absolutely corrupts. And people get corrupted in that system and no matter how hard they pray, there are so many ungodly influences on government. You, you're going to have ebb and flow and you're going to have laws. And, and, and George Will said today on David Brinkley, he said, Sam Donaldson, you know, that great scholar, Sam Donaldson said <laughs> something about... Uh, it's the purpose of it's not the purpose of Congress to make laws or something like that. And George Will said, well, you don't think we've got enough laws? Listen, we've legislated everything. There are laws about everything, but nobody's obeying them. We've got laws in this country against sodomy and homosexuality, but nobody's enforcing them. We've got laws in this country about same-sex marriages, but nobody is enforcing them. And it looks like, boy, we're just getting beat up. Well, 
The commander-in-chief told us it was going to be like this in 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. I read in a mail out this week about a church in the Northeast that has called a male homosexual couple to be their co-pastors of their church. They are paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons, and by means of the hypocrisy of liars, they are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. I didn't say that. God said that. Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. Boy, now, if this doesn't describe the evening news... Chapter 3 and verse 1, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parent, parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. Did you notice that God put in there people who hold to a form of godliness but deny its power, and he says to avoid those kind of people? You see, we're in a battle. And sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. It's a done deal, folks. Ultimately, every state in America is going to have a lottery. We can fight it, and every time the percentage goes down in every state. Every state in America is ultimately going to have casino gambling. We're going to fight it, and we're going to stand against it, but we're going to lose. Why? Because that's the direction that man without God is always going to go. We can fight everything we want to fight, and we ought to fight it, and we ought to stand up, we ought to say what we believe, and believe what we say. But the truth of the matter is, in the last days, there are going to be people who are lovers of self and lovers of money and revilers and disobedient and ungrateful and irreconcilable and haters of good, and those people somehow seem to always get their way eventually. But they haven't won the war. They've just won a battle. Now, the next verse is in 2 Timothy 4, just over a page in verse 3. And here's what happens in the church. This is talking about what happens in the church and what happens in the world, but now Paul comes down and he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, Here's what you and I have got to do. We should never base our judgment on what God is doing by today's headline or today's lead story because God is not through doing what he's going to do. The final word rests with the Almighty. It does not rest with the devil. Look at that quote by Erwin Lutzer, if you would please. Let it be emphatically said that Satan will never have the satisfaction of winning even so much as one permanent victory. Not even the most insignificant battle is ever his. 
When he stops to savor the damage done, he needs only remember that his final judgment is that much greater. I love this statement. The higher he crawls, the further he falls. <laughs> we ought to say that out loud together. Let's just tell the devil right now. The higher he falls, the further he falls. I'm going to get it right this time. The higher he crawls, the further he falls. So you just told the devil exactly where he's going to end up. Isn't that good? Hey, let him attack. Let him do whatever he wants to do. But I'm going to tell you something. Every victory he wins, he falls a little further. You see, he can't even enjoy the victories that he wins in your life because he knows that ultimately those victories that he wins in your life ultimately cost him for all eternity. Now, who's winning in your life? It doesn't matter about the battle. Satan's attacking but God's triumph is sure. Now, there are times to claim the promises of God, and let's look at Romans 8, 31. Proverbs 18 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous runs to it and is safe. Proverbs 8, 31. I hate that we always say Proverbs 8, 31 for funerals because I don't think it's Scripture to be read so much at time of death as it is a Scripture to be read when you're in the middle of it. When a person has died, they've already accomplished this. They've already seen this by sight. They've already experienced it by being in the presence of Christ. They know the ultimate victory over death and hell and the grave. We're still in the middle of it. Sometimes we reserve these verses just for those who have died in the Lord. But here's what Paul says in Romans 8:31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, he will not also, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is good news. You don't have to sweat it, folks. There's nothing the devil can do to you to separate you from the love of God. Verse, chapter 8, Romans chapter, I mean uh, Joshua chapter 8 now in verse 24. Let's turn back there, please. Because I want you to see the last, second th to the last thing. God wants us to decidedly stand against compromise. God wants us to stand against compromise. Ro uh, I got Romans on my mind now and I can't get it off. Joshua 8 and 24. Now it came about when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the field of the wilderness where they pursued them and all of them had fallen by the edge of the sword until they were destroyed. Then all Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not withdraw his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Why did God do that? Well, 
In the Old Testament, there were 13 sins that demanded the death penalty. Included in those were adultery and homosexuality. The Canaanites were guilty of child sacrifice. They were morally polluted. They were sexually perverted. They had had all those years of hearing about the things of God. They even had the time when Jericho had been defeated to repent and ask God to forgive them, but they defied the people of God. They were bent on sinning. And God knew that they would not repent and that they would corrupt those that were his people, and so he said that they were to be destroyed. It was God's judgment on a society that resisted his grace and resisted his truth. Now, let's go back to the book of Romans. I knew I had Romans in me for a reason. Let's go back to the book of Romans and see how Paul backs this up and talks about how God turns people over. Now, in Joshua, Joshua wiped out the people. He wiped out everything. He did it under God's command so that they would not compromise with Satan and thus have those people coming back to haunt them. By the way, there's a chapter on ahead in the book of Joshua in chapter 17 where it says that they could not defeat some of the people in the land because they had chariots and they were supposed to have been their slaves by then, but they didn't drive them all out and so they lived with the consequences of it. Romans 1 and verse 18. Let's just read a few of those verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. The writer of Hebrews says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Earlier, uh, in fact, it was Labor Day, I think, we broadcast some of our Bible conferences, and, and I was turning around on the channel, and, and Ron Dunn was preaching from one of the Bible conferences a couple of years ago, and he was preaching on Romans chapter 1. And he made a statement there that I don't want to go into a lot, but, but I just want to simply summarize it. You ought to get the tape. It's one of the best messages on Romans 1 I've ever heard in my life. But he said this, the punishment for sin is more sin. You want to sin? God will let you sin. And I don't know if you remember it, but he gave the example of eating Miracle Whip. That he used to love to go and, and just get a spoon and eat Miracle Whip out of, the, out of the jar. And his mom said to him, Okay, son, you want to eat Miracle Whip? You can have it. Here, here's a jar and here's a spoon. Have at it. And he said, man, I thought my mom was the greatest mother on the face of the earth. I thought, oh gosh, she's letting me eat Miracle Whip to my heart's content. He said, and I ate, and I ate, and I ate. And he said, I got sick as a dog. And to this day, 
He can eat a little Miracle Whip on a sandwich, but he can't eat Miracle Whip any other way. Now, why is that? Because she gave him what he wanted. You know how God punishes sin? Oh, you want to be a free society? Oh, you want homosexuality to be accepted? Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll give you that, and I'll give you more, and I'll give you every result of it until you're even sick of yourselves. I'll give it to you. That's what you want. Three times, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. You know what the punishment for sin is? That you get to sin all you want to. That's the punishment for sin. And you and I cannot compromise because what happens to us is we get sucked in to those people who say, God, just wish God would give me what I want. And then when they get it, they're the most miserable people in the world. Now the last thing, and he ends on a high note in Joshua chapter 8. In verse 30, he says, Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. God wants our deliberate and determined worship. Now, Joshua took the people to Mount Ebal, to the Mount of Blessings and the Mount of Cursings, and, and that's a whole other message in itself. But what he did was, at a time when they could have pressed on with the war, at a time when they could have kept pushing, by now everybody would know it doesn't matter what you do, you're not going to defeat Israel. At a time when they could have pushed ahead, he paused for worship. It is a reminder to us that no matter how good things are going, it is a reminder to us that no matter how strong our momentum is and how much God is blessing what we're doing, there must be that time when we pause to worship God daily and then corporately we gather together on Sundays and worship Him. There are those times to pause in the midst of the war and not press it but pull back and say, God, we remember who you are and what you've done for us. Now, there are seven quick things that I want to give you that would motivate us to worship. First of all, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's enough to worship Him for. Nothing today, tomorrow, or any day in your life can separate you from the love of God. Number two, God will never forsake us even when we fail Him. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That's enough to gather and worship in His name because He'll never leave us. Number three, God brings us hope in times of discouragement. Oh, the testimony of so many people is at the time when I was discouraged, at the time when I was down and I was defeated and I was distraught, God came in by His Spirit and gave me hope and encouraged my heart. The next one is that God can take a failure and turn it into a victory. God can take some of your biggest failures and if you'll let Him, He'll reverse it and turn it into a victory. A spinoff of that is that Romans 8.28 has always been and will always be true. Romans 8.28 is as true today as it was the day that Paul penned those words under the inspiration of the Spirit. Number six, he turns blunders into blessings. He can turn blunders into blessings. Lord, I, I messed up so bad, I don't know how you can... How you can bless that? I don't know how you can do that. And he inhabits the praise of his people. He inhabits the praise of his people. God wants us to pause, and he wants us to worship him. He turns our blunders into blessings. Listen, there have been some times when I've preached, and I felt like from the moment I opened my mouth until the time I got through, it was a blunder. And inevitably, somebody writes me a note or calls me, or sees me after the service and says, boy, that really spoke to me. 
And then some times that I really think I've done, quite honestly, I've done pretty good. I feel like the Lord and I kind of hit a long ball that day, you know, and, and, and nobody says anything. You know what God reminded me of? You're just a tool, son. You're just an instrument. And it doesn't matter how good you are or how bad you are. It doesn't matter how polished you are or how refined you are. That's not the issue. The issue is I will take your life if you'll give it to me and I will make it a blessing to somebody else. And that's what God wants to do with your life. You say, but I've got an AI in my life. I've got a defeat. It, and it's a big one and I don't know if I'm going to overcome it. I've got a problem. I've got sin in my I've got an area in my life. Listen, all you've got to do is begin at chapter 8, verse 1. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then come down to those last verses in chapter 8 and read about the fact that God wants to bless you and that God wants you to worship Him and God wants you to praise Him and God wants you to inhabit with Him the praises of His people. He wants you to enjoy His presence. And when you see, when you enjoy His presence and when you worship Him and when you celebrate who He is in your life, then all of a sudden the things that you fear and the things that dismay and the things that discourage, they kind of slip to the sides. And you begin to see the more you focus on him, the less you worry about all the stuff going on around you. You know, we got some folks in some bad fixes right now. Some people that have been flooded out. We've got people that are hurting. We've got a lot of people in needs. We've got a lot of people that have every reason to be dismayed. But you know, I have discovered something in these last few months. I have seen more smiles on people who have lost everything that this world had for them than I have seen on some people who were spared from destruction. You know why? Because they took a chaotic event and they turned to the Lord and the Lord met them at the point of their need and he spoke to their heart and said, Don't fear. Don't be dismayed. I'm going to get you through this. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing's going to keep me from loving you. There's nothing here that I can't get you through. And they've pushed on. It doesn't mean they don't have their bad days. It doesn't mean that there are times when they're not discouraged. It doesn't mean that there are times when it feels like uh, they're just being defeated. It just means that when you and I begin to focus on the Lord, when the props are knocked out from under us and we focus on Him, we find that it's time to pause and worship not keep pressing on. And what we tend to do is we tend to keep pressing and pressing and pushing and pushing, hoping that something will happen, and we don't pause to let God tell us how to make it happen through Him. Would you just pause to worship the Lord right now? And in your way and in your seat, would you make where you're seated a place of worship? And would you worship Him and would you praise Him and would you thank Him? Find something in your life that you can thank Him for today. And make where you're sitting a place of praise and a place of thanksgiving. Would you do that in this moment right now before we begin our invitation? This is your invitation to be part of the excitement of worship every week at this time at Sherwood Baptist Church, located at 2201 Whispering Pines Road in Albany.